Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation, and productivity. Well, what more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders, favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off your shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer. And I'm speaking from the UK, London, the land of fish and chips. And in this episode, we're going to talk about SMEs, tech leaders tips from a successful serial startup CTO creating startup culture in SME organisations for hyper-growth, innovation and business survival, of course. And our special guest joining us for this conversation from Utah, USA, is Steve Books, CTO of Slingshot Technologies. We're going to talk about his journey, what tips he would like to share with his fellow men and women tech leaders out there and inspire those who aspire to be tech leaders. Steve is a serial starter upper. And what we hope to do here in this podcast is bring the wisdom of startup companies to the medium to large size organisations out there. Anyway, let's not delay any further. Let's bring on Steve. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Great. And, and you're from the USA, Utah. Utah. Yep. USA. Been here pretty much my whole life. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of Utah. We have so many great things here, but I shouldn't say that because then we'll have more people move here. So. <laughs> it's great to have you on. So give us a quick kind of brief history of, of, of Stephen. Yeah, so for a lot of you know tech leaders, I got started really early. I always had this just desire to play around with technology. You know, my mom shares an experience and it's one of her favorite stories of a neighbor giving away an old computer and me pulling my red wagon down there to, to pick it up. And this was the old green screen computer with the actual floppy disks. Wow. And so I got that hooked up and I, and, and, and I was hooked ever since. So wow. I learned how to program. I started a bulletin board system uh, that was kind of pre-internet back in the day. So I had, you know, two or three phone lines coming into our house and, and it was, it was a really fun, neat thing. And, and I, you know, got to talk to people in my community and they'd call in. And then when the internet came, you know, bulletin board systems kind of went away which was a little sad because it was very localized. And so you could go meet these people and now it was much more global. Yes. Uh, but I always had a big fascination with technology and then also business. And so first business was, you know, I was 15 years old and I uh, learned how to build computers and, and I went and service computers and, and got them with some different companies and, and uh, you know, got my feet wet on the entrepreneur side. So I've always loved that, that, that intersection between technology and business. Yes. Uh, after I got out of college, I went and went and started or went and joined a startup. And uh, that first startup was a very crazy startup. I was there for seven years and I always look at it as the best education I, I ever had on on really what not to do. Um, a lot of the bad uh, experiences that that people do encounter with startups was, you know, we, we encountered a lot of those on that one. It was a very challenged company. Brilliant. But it kept me interested and uh, got to work on a lot of interesting things and learn a lot of great lessons. And that really catapulted me to um, some of the more successes I've had after that. 
after I moved uh, you know, away from that company, I helped co-found a company called CapShare. And uh, we did equity management. And it was very similar to Carta. A lot of people know Carta. Yeah. And uh, built that out for five years and was acquired by a company called Solium. And then Solium was acquired by Morgan Stanley. So uh, that was a seven year kind of run and ended up working for Morgan Stanley, which I never thought I would uh, work for a company that large. And then uh, working for, you know, decided to make the move and go join another startup as the CTO. Yes. And, you know, started one more company kind of between that called Track My Drive back in 2012. And, and that was just recently acquired as well. So been great, been been to, th you know, through three different exits. And so gained a lot of great experience there. And it's been a fun run. Brilliant. So uh, looking at your kind of track history, um, I, we were kind of joking before the podcast, uh, calling you a, a, a serial starter upper, you know, what, what is it about startups that you like? What kind of attracts you to them? Yeah, I love the I love building something, you know, especially from either the ground up or or executing farther on it. There's just something fun about building a business and especially playing that important role in it. So you can look back and, and be like, man, we built, you know, CapShare and, you know, users loved it. And we got, you know, we got an exit and building that business and being a little bit more on the, on the ground level there. That's what really motivates me for me to, to go to a bigger business and just kind of be put in into one area and, and not have as much control and say and, and influence on the business. That's a lot harder for me. So, yes. I, I, you know, I, that, that's the pieces that I love about it. And I also love the upside where, you know, I might be able to work, you know, five years and, you know, make a lot of money during that time. And, and I, you could also not make any money too, because it is the risk, but I think you take the risk and, and that's, what's exciting for me is to take some risks on, on some of that stuff. Okay. It kind of feels like a bit of a roller coaster, you know, uh, some does. real kind of extreme highs and some uh, yeah. real kind of moments where you, you hit the dips. Yeah. And you've got to think of it as a game a little bit or else sometimes the, the, the mental depression can sometimes get in where you get yes. a little too, get a little bit too ingrained into the startup for to where you are the startup, right? I look at it as a little bit more of a game and, and try to, you know, think of, of, of it a little more in a fun way. If not, I think you can get into some dark places. So. Yes. Yeah. I kind of, quite interested in I'm curious around how you found being a technology leader within a, a startup and then you kind of transition to the Morgan Stanley what was the kind of striking difference there for you was it different yeah it was it was a lot different and so you know, you know maybe I show share kind of how uh, the structure was set up yeah and so when capture was acquired by uh, by Solium Solium was a pretty big company as well it was publicly traded on the Canadian market you know 800 employees Wow. The way we structured it was, you know, for basically two years, they were going to kind of let us do our thing. And so they, they set up, uh, you know, some management bonuses and some incentives, and they just kind of let us do our thing still because they wanted to, to, to feed that growth engine. Yeah. And I thought that worked really well. Uh, a lot of the founders stayed, uh, almost all of them. The CEO stayed for a year and he, he told them up front, I've got to go start my next thing, you know, and so I'm only going to give you a year. But uh, everyone else stayed because the bonuses were were enticing. Yes, and uh, we felt like we were still had a lot of control of our own destiny. Around that two year mark is where you, you kind of they kind of started breaking up into two different camps. You had the camp of let's get everything integrated into Solium. Yeah, and then this camp of no, you you should just continue to leave us alone, kind of, and provide us resources, but let us do our let us do our thing, right? Yeah, 
And uh, I was definitely a lot more in, into this camp of treat us like this independent company more. You know, we, we continue to have almost like board meetings with Solium, right? Yes. And I, I think that was, that, that would be a faster way to innovate. And there's other people on this side, what, you know, we had separate Salesforce instances and our marketing wasn't great and our payroll was tough because we had two different companies. And so you had this other side that was a lot more like, Hey, let's integrate, let's integrate, let's integrate. And I feel like we, we lose a little bit of that startup feel and that flexibility by doing some of the integrations. Yes. Where I think if they, if you would have left it a little bit more like that, that we could have innovated faster and kept a lot more of the founders interested in here. Cause because the other problem too is after you get integrated, let's say a founder wants to make say a million dollars over the next couple of years. It's very difficult for the company to say like, oh, I'm gonna pay a million dollar bonus to this one employee. Have that on their books and to get that approved and all that kind of stuff is very difficult. Even though for a startup, that's kind of what you're looking for. You get equity that you want to be worth a lot of money. And so um, it, it's hard for a larger company to justify that. But if it's a separate company, and you set up the structure right, I think you can still allow for that upside and keep those founders in place and still innovate, but still be part of the larger company. Beautiful, excellent. And as we're kind of talking around startups, kind of transitioning into these acquisitions, also got any tips for the kind of tech leaders out there in this kind of innovation space, in the kind of startup space of how any lessons that you've learned around how you structure the kind of uh, the investment and, and the equity around that? Yeah. And you've got to be, you know, equity is a really hard subject because uh, there's, I, I've seen some companies where they keep raising rounds, keep raising rounds, keep raising rounds, and you get to the end and it's, everyone has such a small ownership and there's such a liquidation preference, you know, stack in front of that, yeah. that uh, it's, it's very difficult to, you know, to make the money, right? And so we, we really face this when growing cap shares, how much money do we raise and how much money do we, do we not? Cause you know, you might get to a $20 million outcome. And if you're, if you own 10%, that's great. Like that's, that's $2 million, right? Mm. Or you go really swing for the fences and you, you keep diluting yourself, you know, along the way. So those equity decisions are very tricky. There's no one right answer. But I think you've got to really understand the terms when when you're taking the investment, because there are different liquidation preferences and different triggers and whatnot um, that that you got to think about when you take that money, because the investors will have the preferred stock and they're going to get paid first. Yes, and and they're going to have that liquidation preference up to a certain amount before the common stockholders start to start to participate. So I think you've really got to understand that and. You know, at Capture, we even built that waterfall tool to where you could see, okay, if I get this exit, you know, for this amount with this new investment, what does that look like for us all? Yes. Yeah. And so in terms of, uh, let's say, for example, we've got a tech leader out there listening right now, and uh, they are in this kind of situation where they're looking to uh, structure this equity in a, in a particular way, where, where would you kind of suggest that they go to get that advice? Would it be to another person that's kind of been around the, around the block a few times like yourself or... Yeah, I would definitely find, uh, and there are like certified equity professionals, you know, CEPs that you can talk to and stuff. I think uh, talking to, you know, even if you have current investors, uh, they're going to help as well because they're going to be diluted as as well if new investors come on. So I think you've got to talk to, you know, some people that, that, that know what's going on, especially if this is your very first 
you know, round that you're taking on. Yes. And the other thing to consider is, uh, you know, how much equity are you giving to your employees and how you structure that? I think that's really important early days in the startup because it keeps you motivated. Yeah. I think early on, I would rather pay less and have more equity because I feel people would be, have the right motivation to, to keep going. Cause it's one thing to be like, Oh, I'm getting paid what I could get paid here. It's another thing. It's like, yeah, I'm getting underpaid every single year. And so I really care about this equity and therefore I really care about what the company is doing yes. because I can't just be that, you know, punch the clock. You tell me what to do because I'm, I'm taking a, a cut and pay every, every day that I work for this startup. Yeah. Yeah. And this kind of, that's quite a nice transition into uh, a question I've here around, you know, as a, as a tech leader, obviously you've got to be a bit of a, a tech wizard and, and know your thing in terms of you know the teams that you have running under you you know the boys and girls doing the work at the coalface what tips would you do you have around kind of getting the best out of them yeah and this is a very interesting question too because i think if you talk to a lot of a lot of tech companies like they wish they could just get more output yes you know technology is is difficult and and they see how valuable it is as well and I think if you were to do a survey, I think you could ask most of these companies and they just wish, oh, I wish we got more output. I wish we got more productivity. Yeah. And there's some, you know, issues that come up with, with technology and, and doing that. You know, a lot of times things are much more difficult than, than you think they are and don't have the impact that you want. Yeah. But uh, when we look at like, how do we motivate and how do we keep a team? I think first off, what I look at is like, how, how often are you churning people? And if you're having a lot of, you know, the devs leaving and he's going somewhere else, you're going to have a hard time making it if you're getting a high churn rate. Yeah. Because you get this dev, you get him, him or her, you know, into the code, they're, they're getting productive. And if they're just switching, you know, in six months, you're having to re-ramp, you know, people up there. So I think you've got to look at a motivation of a developer. Why are they, you know, why are they picking you over the next company? Because you have these huge companies that will pay a lot of money and you've got to have more than just, okay, we were, our salary is the same, our salary is a little better. Mm. And some of these other places will beat you on salary every day. Right. Yeah, so I think uh, if you're having a high churn rate, you've probably got a problem. And I think the problems that I've seen, why I think devs will churn a lot is first off, if they have like unrealistic expectations. Yeah. So if the business side is just shoving this down their throat, it's this toxic environment. Uh, there's not this sense of learning and discovery and hypothesis and, and whatnot that would do it. I think if you're, if you're on a, a team with a legacy app, that's harder because you're going to have to probably pay devs more to work on old technologies. Cause a lot of the devs want to work on new technologies. That's right. Yes. So, that, so that's a big one as well. And then I think they've got to believe in the product. So if you're, if you're shipping features and you're doing all this stuff and it's not getting usage, uh, then that's a problem as well, because that means you have like a prioritization problem and devs want to see their, their, their code working and in production and used. We don't want to build just a bunch of features that, you know, no one, no one's using as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of the thing around motivation as well. I kind of like that. What is it that you, would like to kind of share around how you get your teams to to really feel for the product and want to kind of drive the best customer centric kind of solutions yeah i and i think that's what you gotta you gotta find because if it's just output you get in that product trap of we release 10 things 20 things hey great awesome dev team but uh if you look at usage if no one's using those 10 or 20 things then then you failed yeah and so if you're just measuring those 
you know, output on like features shipped, then I think you're measuring the wrong thing. So I think you've got to change your measures to outcome. So I would rather release five things that have great outcomes over 10 things that were either half done or, you know, we didn't market them well enough. We didn't get usage. Yeah. So I think it's important to, to measure, you know, the right things as well on those. Uh, and, and that will motivate the devs when they see that they're making an impact and that their software is being used and it's generating revenue. That, that does a lot for motivation. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned here around new technologies and new uh, ways of kind of creating software. How do you kind of balance that between trying to, obviously you've got to deliver at the end of the day, you've got to deliver value, but also got to keep people interested. Um, do you find that quite tricky? It is quite tricky. It's very difficult because, uh, especially with a lot of new technologies coming out. Yeah. So you've got to strike that balance of, of, uh, of, of new technology to, to the old. And so I, I've went and consulted with places and they've got 10 or 15 different technologies they're running. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, this is so difficult. And some of these technologies have a very uh, limited you know, shelf life. Yes. Back uh, you know, five years ago, it was like a new JavaScript library every day. Yes. And so you, you do need to find, uh, there, there are times where there's the engineers that's always chasing the new thing. And, uh, and unless they're using their greatest and latest, they'll, they'll probably leave you to go to something else. Uh, I was interviewing one dev and, and we, we, we don't use TypeScript right now. And he pretty much said, unless you use TypeScript, I'm not you know, going to join you. And so the, the, that's going to be a little bit higher risk if, if you're hiring those types of you know, devs that only like to use the new technology. On the flip side, it's really difficult to hire um, if you're using old technology, you're just going to have, I think you're just going to have to pay a lot more Yeah. because the dev is making the sacrifice of, Oh, I'm going to work for you. I'm not going to learn this technology. So you better pay me a lot more. So we're just very, uh, for me, I, I, I am a bit skeptical of switching technologies too often. Uh, sometimes there'll be, Oh, this is way more scalable. This is way better. It'll be way faster. And you spend months and months and months of re, re refactoring and rewriting. And I think a lot of time that's definitely not the case. Uh, almost any technology will work. Um, there are trade-offs of course, but uh, I think if you, you could fall into that trap of always rewriting for the sake of just using a new technology. And I think that's very damaging. That's right. Um, I just think of a, I was kind of smirking to myself then because I remember working for a company many, many years ago where uh, C++ was becoming uh, the thing, you know, and uh, they, everything was written in C. So they decided to refactor everything into C++ and they didn't deliver to the market, which is yeah. crazy, you know? Yeah, if, especially if you're just doing it for, for the sake of doing it. You know, if you're making a brand new product, maybe you say, yeah, let's use a new technology on this brand new product. But if it's just, hey, I'm rewriting this for the sake of rewriting it in this new technology, there can be problems with that for sure. And in terms of, um, again, on the subjects of teams, um, obviously we had a kind of groundbreaking challenge, a, a worldwide challenge uh, with the kind of COVID. And, uh, you know, I imagine many of your teams are working remotely. How have you found that? Yeah, so prior to COVID, we would, we would have a, a remote work policy. So at CapShare, it'd be three days in the office, two days at home. And then uh, it was very similar at Slingshot, but Slingshot decided to go full remote on all of their employees uh, even before COVID happened. So oh, wow. yeah, we run a pretty big uh, service center call floor uh, with, with hundreds of people. And they just found, they, they ran the numbers and they had better people they'd find, better retention, better quality, and they could hire you know, anywhere uh, in the nation. 
And so they just found like huge benefits here. And so when COVID hit, we were already pretty, pretty set up uh, for remote, which was great. We actually sold our office space a month before, which was awesome. That would have never happened after. But, you know, everything has its trade-offs. So I think on, on the good side, what I liked about everyone being remote is we did, when we were kind of half on, half off, you got to think ahead a little bit more like, okay, hey, John's not in this meeting. You know, he's not here right now. He's remote. Oh, we need to make sure we include him or write this, all that, all this down. When everyone's remote, you know, you're forced to, hey, we need to all jump on the Zoom meeting together. Oh, we need to write this down, right? Yes. So it's consistent. Yeah, it's yeah. consistent. And everyone's living in that kind of same world. So I love the benefits of that. And I also love the benefits of I can hire uh, outside of, you know, Utah, where I'm at. And it's very yeah. competitive here. And, and so I can find that. I think the disadvantage is you do get into these meetings and you don't have that water core time as much. And you're not seeing each other. You're not developing a bit of a friendship. And so I think you've got to bake that in, you know? And so when COVID's over, we're going to get together two, three, four times a year. We're going to go play top golf. We're going to go have some fun together because you've got to start developing some of those relationships, I think. And uh, for us, uh, even with Zoom, we, we make it a requirement that you're always to have your video on. And we f found out that's very, you know, beneficial. People can see your facial expressions. And, and so we've kind of made that a rule on our, on, on the dev side and, and, and the business side hasn't made that rule. And I wish they kind of would, because I, I see so much value to being able to see each other and, and, and talk to each other. So I, I think in general, it's better all around, but you've got to keep in mind some of those trade-offs to make sure you're, you're still fulfilling some of those needs. I love that idea of kind of breaking the ice and getting those relationships fired up. I agree with you. It's very important that you, you do create that kind of social system so people kind of know each other. And it's not just about work. Do you have any kind of crazy online remote parties at all? Yeah. So I talked to a friend, I think where I implement this, they, they just have a BS meeting where we just get <laughs> together and BS. And, you know, here's a half an hour to just shoot the breeze. Yeah. Because right now it is a lot more, if it was a more, more formal in meetings, we get to the point sooner. We don't talk as much. And so I think that's, yeah. uh, you know, I think we're going to do that a bit. You've got to bake that in a little bit, some, some sort of that. We also did, for our last one, we, we got Grubhub for everybody. And, and that was great. So we could just sit down and, and eat some food and talk. So Yeah, that's brilliant. I love it. Excellent. I'm glad that you've uh, you made the transition before. In terms of, again, the performance of, would you say productivity's changed at all? Yeah, so productivity is very difficult to measure for devs, like in and of itself. And so the advantage of productivity when you're sitting by each other is at least you know someone's working on something, right? And <laughs> they're probably not watching a YouTube or something. You're interacting, you're being with each other. Yeah. So there, there are some advantages to that, to where you can at least see that people are working on stuff. Uh, even that has its problems, right? Um, even in a, in a closed atmosphere, people can still just kind of mess around. Yeah. So it's definitely not a silver bullet. But measuring one dev to another is very, very difficult. You know, the, the business org wants something like, you know, for their sales team where, hey, give me revenue per, you know, salesperson. And that's pretty easy, easy to measure. And it's very impactful, right? What's your sales metric for a developer? Yeah. Do you look at, you know, what is it? What's a good one? Okay, lines of code. Well, that's not a great measure. I'm just cranking out lines of code and, and not, you know, making it concise or good. Commits. Well, one commit might be bigger than another. You know, pull requests. 
sometimes I'll work on a bug for two days and I'll change one line of code. Yes. And, uh, and also if I'm pairing with somebody, all my metrics go to pot. Yes. And so sometimes if you're so focused on some of these metrics, you're actually driving some of the wrong behaviors, I think as well. And so it's very difficult to know uh, great developer productivity, but I think you can also use some of these things to, to look for problems. And so, yeah, if a dev hasn't committed in three days. Yeah. Yes, something's <laughs> all, wrong. Yes, yeah. Something's wrong. And you know, you can, that's where you do need other engineers to, to, to and other peer reviews. Yes. Uh, to see, to see that because context is all is so important. So it, someone might not commit something for three days, but you look at it, you see it's a nasty bug mm. and it's hard to, to figure out, okay, uh, that probably makes sense. So unfortunately in our industry, we still have a lot of like, look at the, what they're doing, have someone that, that, that is in a similar situation and make the judgment call. And that's difficult. Cause if you want to put someone on a performance plan, you don't have great numbers. It feels still a lot gut reaction. Yeah. But uh, there's, so far, there's there's not a perfect metric for that, and that's kind of the world we live in. Do you use uh, any kind of frameworks, um, and Agile, uh, Scrum, Kanban, or anything like that? Yeah, and, and and just to the last point, we I'm actually a big fan of the the Velocity tool by Code Climate uh, because you know they 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 do bake in a lot more things like oh, you know you comment on this pull request and people listen to your comments, or this developer is not commenting on any pull requests, or their pull requests are way too big. And so I, I think you can use tools and you should, Yes. but just be careful that they don't become, you know, a, a stick or a carrot too much because then your dev team starts to distrust you and starts to distrust the metrics and tries to game them. So to your other question, uh, I'm a big proponent of agile, uh, the, the more pure agile manifesto. I think agile has been a very abused word in our yeah. industry. Yes. Sometimes I say, what's agile? And I, I almost lose what it really is because people bring up points, they bring up standups, they bring up retrospectives. And, and if you look at the actual manifesto, none of those things are mentioned. And so the manifesto has four main values and, you know, 12 principles. And I believe very strongly in, in, in both of the values and the principles. But uh, I, I've also seen where scrum will turn into scrum ball, which is basically waterfall on scrum where it's plan way ahead, spec everything out, you know, estimate, estimate, estimate. Okay, this will be done in six months, you know, based on these points. And uh, it turns very much into what Waterfall was. Yes, that's right. You sound very aligned to my kind of thinking as well. Go back to the values and principles because they tell you what is the best situation or at least you can have a conversation. So how do you kind of instill that in your teams then? What's your kind of process for getting what I'll call real agile, authentic agile? One thing I look for is how much of our time are we just spending planning? And, uh, you know, the business wants great plans and they want great tracking and they want great project management. But if we're spending 50% of our time on, on those things, yeah. then, I, then, you know, that's a huge cost. And what they're trying to derive is, you know, cost and estimates and when things are getting done so we can align, which are all very valuable. But, uh, you know, I, when, sometimes you can be overburdened by process. And so you have so many meetings trying to determine these things and trying to estimate and trying to get good estimates. And what typically happens is, uh, you know, you'll, you'll start with scrum or whatever, you'll start with your two week sprint, you know, maybe you're way, way under. And so then it's like, well, we need to spec it better. We need to break it down more. We need to break it down more. We need to break it down more. Right. Hmm. And so you end up with, 
you know, maybe you have 20 tickets for this one feature, 30 or 40 tickets, and then you start getting into all these interdependencies between these tickets, right? And this critical path and all this stuff that you've got to do. And so I think it's very important that you have the right amount of process. And I really try to bake in, you know, maybe it's 10, 20% or whatever should be around some of this planning and, 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 and thinking ahead, but uh, you can get way overburdened by it. And what's interesting about it too is, uh, I, I don't even think when you get that overburdened that even really makes it a lot more accurate. So it's, you start getting in that 80, 20 rule of, yeah, you know, when you're in the 90% and, and trying to do all this stuff, you're not a lot more accurate than the 80%, right? But it took you a lot more time, time to get there. So yeah, what we typically do, I, I also think it's very important to, to have some dates because the other thing can happen too, where it's like, Oh, it'll be done when it's done. And, and the bit and the business, is just told, you know, when it's done, we'll let you know type of thing. Yeah. And I think you definitely need that drive, uh, you know, for people to like push forward to a date. Yes. And so it's amazing. I, I'm always so shocked. Like if you have a name and a date by something and you follow up with that, how much that can drive productivity uh, just by those two things. Wow. But you've got to be careful there. Cause again, sometimes if the dates are too harsh, you're going to get technical debt, you're going to get burned out employees, you're going to get all this stuff. So it, it, you need to use the dates in a conservative way and in, in the right way. But I still think you do need to have something that focuses your mind a bit and keeps you focused on, on the goal as well. Yeah, it's a real balance, isn't it? It really is. It's kind of a constant kind of shifting backwards and forwards. I love what you say around if you kind of drive productivity, you can kind of increase technical debt. I was talking to another uh, chief technology officer around this. If you don't get that kind of in, in balance and reasonable levels, um, it, that can blow up in your face as well, you know? Absolutely. Have you, have you had any examples of technical debt kind of build up to a point where it's become uh, explosive? Yeah, and, and it's it's a hard thing to talk about because, you know, I, I even talk to my CEO now, he, he, he talks to these big companies and talks to devs there and they're like, yeah, it's a total mess. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's like, oh, successful company, messy code. Uh, you know, why are we worried about code, right? Yeah. And uh, I've seen where that's definitely made huge impact. So, you know, early days at CapShare, we had uh, a lot of the founders, uh, they just coded. They learned how to code. They're very smart people. Wow. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, we didn't raise the money right, right off the bat. And so they were just coding away and, uh, you know, no great engineering practices at all. And uh, it felt great at first because it felt so productive and we were, we were launching things so fast and so, and so great. We had no processes at all, no peer reviews, no tests, you know, and a uh, couple of years in that really started to bite us. Oh, damn. And so what would happen is we'd fix one thing and 10 other things would break, you know, and, and so we constantly were playing that whack of mole. <laughs> Everything new that came in now started getting way harder to do. Yes. Yeah. So we we kind of had to have a culture change, which was very difficult to where we had to bake in a lot more quality. Yes. And, uh, and it really hurt us at a time where I think we really needed to grow faster. So I always look at it. You, you don't want to build the perfect code and, uh, you don't want to build the temple, but you definitely want a livable house, yes. you want a clean house. And if you always have good habits there and good practices there, you're never going to get to the day where it's like, Oh crap, we can't even pay the debt here. We got to start over. Are we going so slow? And, uh, and you're into those problems. And sometimes the slowness is solved the wrong way. You know, they hire more developers or, uh, you know, they fire people. And, and sometimes the slowness is due to the system. And so you're trying to solve the problem in the wrong way, right? And so 
I think it's important to have good engineering practices and still also be pragmatic uh, because you can also go way too deep and as well. So you've got to ha strike that balance again of, uh, I, I think good code is very important. Yes. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if I make a new feature that I should make it scale to 10 million people right off the bat, we gotta, we gotta find out if it's even useful and, and if people are going to use it as well. That's great. It sounds like you've, uh, you're having good conversations around that and making sure from, uh, I, I sense, uh, as you're talking, there's a, a, a level of old scars there, you know, there is definitely some old scars. Absolutely. <laughs> and pain is a great teacher. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. So in terms of, uh, the other question I've got here around, uh, how wide do you go at the beginning? Yeah. So I think in the beginning, you're trying to prove a hypothesis. You're trying to prove if someone's going to use the thing or not. So in the beginning, you've got to change how you act as, as you go into the company. So in the very beginning, I'm a lot more like, let's just get it out there. I still will bake in a certain amount of quality, even with that, because a lot of times those do turn into your core systems if it works, right? So I always say, hey, spend 20% time more, write tests. Uh, I'm a big fan of testing, you know, having a regression test. Yeah. And, uh, but also don't try to handle every single edge case and don't worry as much about like scaling to billions and billions of people. So what I try to do is start with a prototype, get it out there, get some feedback. And if it does look like it's going to be successful, start to backfill a little bit with some quality, some testing, um, some monitoring, some things like that. Um, and so in the very beginning of a company cycle, I'm a little bit more loosey goosey but not crazy Lucy Goosey either because <laughs> uh, we don't want capture to happen again. Right. But as you get a little bit bigger and, and, and more into these systems and whatnot, uh, I've also seen the problem where the, the CEO that's, that feels so productive in the beginning and we're just slinging stuff out there and we're adding tons of features. That mentality has got to change a little bit when you get farther down yeah. because it, uh, you, you need to, that that ends bad too if you just keep that same scenario and and, and that's really hard for a sales driven organization because oh a client wants us let's hurry and add it client wants us okay let's hurry and add it but you end up having this huge surface area of code that has all these complex logic bits and you're trying to maintain those and add new things and so you've got to change your your mindset as you get farther down i believe yes yeah and in terms of um you've kind of transitioned from a startup to a, a large organization. And I've got a curiosity around how you maintain that innovation. I think you touched on it earlier on post acquisition. Do, do you manage to maintain that innovation or does it kind of peter out? Yeah, I think, uh, and especially with Morgan Stanley, like I, I also see why some of this stuff happens. Uh, they have people that are watching their every move. And uh, if there's risk and a way that they can get sued, someone's going to try to exploit that. Yeah. So when you get to the size of Morgan Stanley, it's a little different than when you're just starting, you know, Joe Schmo's company. No one really cares as much, right? So you can move faster and break things here. Right. It gets harder here. Uh, but that being said, I think, I think uh, even these larger companies, uh, I think they they put way too many walls up. And so what typically happens is some employee they gave him trust or her trust, the trust was broken some way. And now they start adding tape and they start adding rules and they start adding process to try to avoid that from happening. And I think uh, it's that weird dichotomy of like, hey, let's hire these, you know, we don't want to pay a lot of money for employees and we want to bring down our, our costs. And, th and that's really fun to do, right? But then you start hiring these subpar employees 
And then you got to put a bunch of process in place and a bunch of middle management. Yeah. And so you think you saved all this money on cost where you just added a bunch of cost, right? But those are different line items. Yeah. You know, and so I think you've got to empower your employees more. And, and a good example of this is, you know, I had a developer and uh, he was way underpaid. And I said, we've got to get him to market salary or we're going to lose him. And the process for me to get him a bump over 5% or whatever it is, was like, oh, I've got to meet with this person, this person, got to do this report. We have this committee that meets. And uh, I think if it's that stiff, um, it's very hard to get anything done. And so you've got to, I, I think you've got to always look at it from the bottom. How difficult is it for us, for our employees to get things done and take a little bit of the, you know, a little more risk on it. Yeah and trust your employees a little more, even though it's gonna bite you at times in the butt, some employee's gonna do something wrong, but I think you, you're better off trusting a little bit more, uh, especially if you're not Morgan Stanley, right? Uh, especially, a lot, you know, that's a huge bank with billions of dollars of transactions, right? Uh, not everyone's like that as well. So yeah, yeah. So so it is it is possible, but it, you're saying it's a lot harder. Um, I, I can, from experience, uh, I, I also can, can see how, it turns into a bit of a gridlock, you know, uh, in larger organizations. Yeah. There's a lot of things that need to move at the same time, you know? Yeah. And I love, you know, the book Innovators Dilemma and a lot of theirs is, hey, create a separate company, a subsidiary yeah. and have a separate cap table. You know, this company owns part in this, but it allows this company to innovate and, uh, and, and work more independently. And you can't do that with everything, right? But uh, some bigger initiatives or whatnot, um, I think that makes sense. And and you know his point in the book even was like Blockbuster was never going to create Netflix based on how their org was set up. You know one of their big things was late fees and you know coming into the store and whatnot and and so you really needed an innovation team that was trying to put Blockbuster out of business, which is what Netflix did, right? And so yeah, you know maybe you could have formed that startup and say go do your go do your thing. We own twenty percent in you, and if you're successful, we're successful, and we hope you put us out of business. Um, right. Cause we, we own part of you and we'll just buy the rest of you out at that point. Uh, but you know, where's blockbuster now. Right. And, and Netflix has totally taken over. So, uh, you, you've got to think about that innovation, you know, the, the innovators dilemma. And, and of course you can take that too far. Right. And spin out hundreds of companies for every little thing, which doesn't make sense either. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting thing there because you end up cannibalizing your own business, but intentionally it's intentional yeah, cannibalism. Intentional. Yeah. Look at Apple. The, the iPad was cannibalizing. Well, even the, you know, the iPhone was cannibalizing, you know, uh, computers and, uh, their music player, the iTunes. And that's and right. So they continually try to uh, cannibalize themselves because they know that's how they win in the end. That's quite an insightful, uh, observation around how you do that. In terms of you know your journey, have you, have you seen uh, companies in your, you know that you've had startups do that? Yeah, and you've got to have a CEO that gets it or a leadership team that gets it, and that's one of the things I love about Slingshot is uh, we're cannibalizing ourselves. So, for example, we charge uh, per per minute on our call volume, and so you know if we take ten calls and it takes ten minutes, right? We charge for that ten minutes, but we're constantly looking at ways to bring down uh, that minute you know, that, that, that call minute. So we're introducing technology, you know, like say maybe a chat bot can help you first. Right. And that we actually get paid less for that because our agents aren't talking to you. And so we're cannibalizing some of our own revenue, which looks bad in, in one sense, like why would you ever do that? But we also know that unless we, 
unless we do it, someone else is going to do it. That's right. We're looking for that longer term uh, win. And so you've got to have that leadership team that gets that or else you're going to always kind of be stuck in those those ways of oh, top line revenue and always make sure that's high, right? Yes. Yeah. So future proofing by innovating and stepping on your own toes almost, you know, that's, yeah. that's quite interesting that you're, you're actually doing that as well. I've got a question here around um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, big data. What, what's your kind of experience as a tech leader around that, that space? Yeah, I think the, the big one when I hear that is, is first off, make sure you're employing the right tool for the right job. Yeah. So uh, sometimes, you know, you, you mention a big technology and uh and all of a sudden now like your company is worth more because oh we have ai right and so sometimes i think you can apply the wrong tool for the right for the wrong job yeah uh we, we saw this a little bit with even cryptocurrency like as soon as you mentioned cryptocurrency oh your company is worth more well what are you doing with cryptocurrency that doesn't make any sense you know <laughs> uh and so i think you've got to use it for the right purpose so there's there's data i think that that's better structured by using more of a logic tree decision matrix sure um, there's other that makes way more sense for for AI, and so uh, you know, take Netflix for example. Uh, their suggestion engine that one makes a lot of sense for AI. They're taking lots of variables and trying to make decisions off of that. Mm. But you know how we store you know the videos or how we you know show our menu and or, or how we you know do some of this other stuff. I wouldn't have AI for all that kind of all that kind of stuff. So. An example for that for our in our field, um, our we we so we're we're releasing a chatbot that basically you can jump on and and we, it can service you. So you know we do a lot with like pest control. So a company a customer can jump on and say, hey, I have uh, you know have this problem, and we can say, are you a current customer? Are you a new customer? Oh, um, you need to reschedule. Okay, here's the next available slots. Oh, wow. So we noticed that. Uh, you know, in our case, it was very just a decision tree. If I go here, do this, do this, do this, right? And so a, a full like, hey, what do you need done here? And the AI figures it out from there. I don't think would solve our customers that well. Uh, you typically run into, and a lot of people that in AI, they tell you like, it's not a silver bullet. Um, you know, it can get so far, but a lot of times then you got to transfer to, you know, to an actual human. So yeah. I think you've got to look at your use case and uh, and see if it really does uh, make a difference if there's a lot of variables that, that come into play um, like that suggestion engine it could be a great uh, a great case for it other other things not so much so i, I think you've just got to use the right tool for the right job yeah that's good and in terms of resisting the hype obviously as a tech leader how do you resist the hype around some of this stuff yeah and, and it's funny because some of the hype is will make your stock worth more you know but you know, we see this like with EV, with electrical vehicles, you know, there's a company that barely has a business plan and they're worth billions of dollars, right? Um, that could totally work. I'm, I, I don't like playing that game as much uh, of, of just that pure hype, you know, system. I'd rather build a really strong fundamental business that had really good financials and whatnot. So uh, again, I look, if it's a new technology that will help the fundamentals, absolutely use it. Uh, if, if you're just adding it to make your board a little bit happy or kind of sound fancy, okay, that, that might work. It's okay. Uh, don't spend a lot of time, you know, do something and then say you have AI and it kind of satisfies everybody. But can it make a difference on your customers? Can it make a difference on your product? And is it a, is it a big difference? Then, yeah, absolutely employ it. Yes. And, uh, and, and don't get stuck in the old ways, right? But uh, also, you know, again, use it, uh, 
when it makes sense. Yeah, that sounds good. So we're kind of coming towards the end of our time. Um, what kind of takeaway would you like to kind of offer our tech leader men and women out there as a parting gift, Stephen? Yeah, I, I think first off, like realize a lot of a lot of us all have the similar problems. So you're going to have stress from your CEO, from the board, uh, from other people on you know build more, build build it faster, push your team hard, you know get things done. Um, you're going to have those same problems. A lot of us have those same problems, right? So it's, it's finding, you know, ways to solve that um, and, and look at it as, as a problem. So for example, I think with a CTO, you have business and tech and you're the bridge between that. And so if and you've got to build trust on both sides. Yeah. And so you've got to get the, the CEO, you got to make sure he's happy or she's happy. And you've got to make sure you're speaking the devs language as well. And so you've got to bridge that gap. Um, and that's, that's one of your main things. So I think uh, some of the things that we talked about, make sure, you know, that you're, uh, you have the right metrics in place yeah, and that you have the right context in place. You have a good, uh, a, a good environment um, and, and use the technologies in the right place. I think, uh, I think uh, networking with some other CTOs is just invaluable. Because a lot of, in our industry, you might get thrown in to be a CTO way earlier, or a tech leader way earlier than you even have the experience to do that because there, there aren't you know, as many of them. So I see a lot of very young tech leaders and uh, you know, listening to some people that have been around the block a little bit and, and how they can help and whatnot is very, very valuable. Beautiful. A mentoring, uh, a kind of mentoring yeah. group, yeah. And in terms of finding a mentor, how, what, how would you suggest people going to go about doing that for the aspiring tech leaders out there? Yeah. And first thing is like, there's a lot of great, you know, books and, and a lot of great conferences and things like that, but, uh, finding your mentors, uh, it's, it's a little bit bad networking. So, um, we have some different organizations here locally. Um, we have a tribe house that, you know, executives meet at the CTOs meet at. And so, uh, if you don't have that though, you'd be surprised if you reach out to people on LinkedIn, how helpful they are. Mm. And so I've done a few mastermind groups where, you know, five or 10 of us will meet together every so often and we'll just talk through things. And there were some big outcomes wow. uh, that, and, and big insights that I got from some of these people. And I still hit them up all the time and we, you know, text each other and whatnot. So I think you could even just reach out on LinkedIn to some different people and, and, and start to grow a network there as well. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Stephen. Uh, some great insights there. And uh, I'm sure there'll be uh, maybe more questions coming and people can kind of connect with you on LinkedIn and uh, yeah. and get advice. So we'll, we'll share contact details. But thank you very much, Stephen, for your time and uh, good luck with your kind of continuing start upper uh, journey. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate being on the show. Thanks for taking the time and hopefully it was helpful. And uh, like you said, if anyone wants to reach out, uh, uh, more than happy to connect. So brilliant. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Thank you, Steve Books, for offering your valuable time. I love the startup mindset that he and other entrepreneurs like him have. Very agile, adapting, self-reflective, and nimble, and generally cool. That's what I think. Hopefully, some of you tech leaders out there, from small to medium-sized companies, got some juicy bits out of the talk. So my question to you, my fellow tech leaders out there, is what are your key takeaways? What are you going to pick up and run with? Pick one thing and go for it. And are you willing to inject some startup mindset back into your organisation? Well, as for me, my key takeaways were as follows. Cannibalism isn't that bad. Well, 
at least in the context of businesses and their target markets. You see, if you can set up satellite products, that may just be the next big thing in your market. Even if it means it being at the expense of your current bread and butter, your standard products that you're selling right now. Also, another takeaway was to get back to the values and principles of Agile. Something I keep banging about to lots of organisations, particularly large ones, that keep flying in that holding pattern, holding out for something like a quick fix, a quick solution to, to the many complex issues and challenges. And finally, the last big takeaway for me was Steve's idea of baking in the BS meetings, <laughs> baking them into your workday so that people can just shoot the breeze. Just talk about stuff, connect at a social level, particularly, particularly in these times of the COVID-19 crisis where we're all working remotely. And I think we need that to have those water cooler moments, you know, in the digital world. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. And remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs to do this can be found on this page. We're consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a community of tech leaders. You mean a lot to us. And of course, if you want to know more about the services that IT Labs provide, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And as mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world. So, from everyone here at IT Labs, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next podcast.